Well, it is wonderful to be here with you this morning, and as Todd said, we are kicking off the Psalms, and this morning we will be in Psalm 1, but before we do, I want to take a couple of minutes and introduce the book of Psalms as a whole. Some of you may absolutely love this book, or some of you may have been like me, where you love the blunt prose of Paul and the lists that he gives and things like that, that you never actually engage the Psalms that deeply. But what I want to say to you is that when you actually dive into the Psalms, there are so many wonderful treasures, and it is just beautiful and powerful what this collection of people wrote in this book. So if you are unfamiliar with the Psalms, it is the largest book in the Bible. In fact, if you flip your Bible open to the middle, you will most likely find yourself in the Psalms. There's 150 of them. It's a collection of prayers and songs and hymns and poems all to the Lord written by multiple people over hundreds of years, and then finally compiled into the form that we have it today. And it served as a prayer book and the worship book for the ancient Israelites, but as well also Christians. This was Jesus' prayer book. His, his life and his words are steeped in the Psalms, the New Testament Christians. In fact, Christians all throughout history have used the Psalms as their book of prayer and worship In some sections of Christianity, they actually pray through the entire Psalter every single week. So we were on a 30-day or 50-day reading plan if you journeyed with us through that leading up to this series. But they get through it every single week. Pretty amazing. The Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament book within the New Testament. So of all the books in the Old Testament... The Psalms are quoted the most by Jesus and Paul and the writers of the New Testament. As we enter in, there are two important things that I want us to see in the Psalms. Two important things. And the first one is that the Psalms teach us how to pray and what to pray for. Eugene Peterson talks about how prayer is a learned language. We have to learn the language of prayer. We don't just come to Christ and automatically know how to pray or what to pray for. Just like learning English or Spanish, we have to learn this language. And the Psalms are a great guide for that. We ask the questions, what do we pray for? And how do we pray? What kind of circumstances are valid to bring before the throne of God? Perhaps you have more pointed questions. Perhaps you're asking, how do you pray when things aren't going well? Can we tell God that we feel off or that we feel distant? Can we feel God, tell God that we feel fine and he feels distant? Can we tell God when our life isn't headed in a great direction, whether due to our own choices or whether due to circumstances beyond our control, can we bring those before the Lord? Can we express anger in front of God? Can we tell him that we are angry? Or more pointedly, can we tell God that we are angry at him, not just other people, but we are angry at God. The psalm, As we journey through the Psalms, we will see that all of these, indeed all of life's circumstances, can be brought before God's throne. The prayers of the psalmist are raw and vulnerable and sometimes even uncomfortable. One of the most... One of the most dividing psalms is Psalm 137, this psalm where they are in exile in Babylon and it ends with a prayer that somebody would smash the children of the Babylonians' heads against rocks. 
Not a prayer I've ever prayed before, but as I was talking to people, there are two people on the opposite ends of the spectrum that I talked to this week. My wife on one end who dislikes that psalm passionately and does not like the violence or the imagery, and someone else who has been collecting notes on this psalm for years. Excited to preach it. Don't worry, that it's, it makes sense if you talk to them, but... All that to say, the Psalms teach us how to take our everyday experience and cry out to a God who is faithful and hears us and loves us. In fact, John Calvin, in his introduction to the Psalms, says it like this. I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. The Psalms function as an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not represented here as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit here has drawn to the life all the griefs, the sorrows, the fears, the doubts, the hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Everything we could feel, everything we could think, everything we could experience in life is found here in the Psalms and turned back to God in prayer. It's in this sense that everything becomes a context for prayer. Not just the good, not just the bad, not just the extraordinary, but everything. What the Psalms are trying to teach us in this is that the Psalm is that prayer is more than an activity that we do, but that rather prayer is a way of life. Prayer is a way of life. Rather than checking off a box saying, I read my Bible, got through my couple chapters, and then I prayed. Prayer is to be integrated into every part of our lives, our everyday reality, and prayer in that sense becomes a way of life. There's an old Christian phrase that in the Latin says, Lex arendi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. In English, it means the way that we worship and pray becomes the way that we believe, which ultimately shapes how you and I live. The way that we worship and pray together on a Sunday morning, alone in our homes and small groups throughout the week, shapes how you and I believe. And that in turn shapes how we live. Which brings me to the second point. The first is that the Psalms teach us how to pray as a result of them shaping how we believe and live. Then the Psalms teach us how to live. They become instructive as well. In fact, when you open your Bibles and you turn to the Psalms, you might notice something that you haven't noticed before. And that is every once in a while it says book one or book two. And it works its way through. There's five books within the Psalms. So Book 1 is Psalm 1 through 41. Book 2 makes up Psalm 42 through 72. I'm not going to go through all of them, but this is, all of this to say is that the psalmist intentionally divided it up this way to represent the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The psalms are arranged in such a way that we see that just like in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that we find life and the way towards life, the psalms also instruct us in that way. So the Psalms teach us how to pray, and they teach us how to live. As we look at specific Psalms over the next few weeks, we will see that. I have to say that out of 150 Psalms, narrowing it down to six for a sermon series and a small group study was not an easy task, and it was not a fun task. There were so many good ones that we left out, but the way that we chose them was that 
the, there are different types of psalms. There are many different types, and we'll highlight a few of those today. But we chose representative types. So a while back, there were two guys with these wonderful names, Herman Gunkel and Simon Mowinkle. Not to be confused with Simon and Garfunkel. They were psalmists in their own right, but Herman Gunkel and Simon Mowinkle noticed that there were some patterns in the psalms, and they divided the psalms according to these patterns. There were individual and communal praises, psalms that we bring before God, prayers that we bring before God when life is going great. And they do this both on an individual level and for when people are gathered together. And then what makes up the majority of the psalms is actually communal and individual laments for those times when life isn't going good. Those times when God feels distant, or those times when the circumstances of life are not great, there are psalms that help give voice and language to what we are experiencing. These are individual and communal laments. So these are the four major types, communal lament, individual lament, communal praise, individual praise, and we'll look at each one of those. And then there are many minor types of psalms, two of which are wisdom psalms, psalms that teach us how to live and teach us about life, and creation psalms. Psalms that praise God for the wonder of the world that he created that we get to live in. So we're going to look at each one of these six types over the next few weeks. This morning, we are going to start with Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm, and becomes a guide for how we enter into the rest of the Psalter. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 1. As you do so, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we gather together this morning, we pray that you would quiet our hearts. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Would you give us eyes to see you more clearly, Jesus? Would you give us ears to hear your words to us? Would you give us hearts that are soft and receptive to what you are speaking to us and what you are doing within us? that we would be transformed more and more into your image and led in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 is, to believe, is believed to have been one of the last psalms in the Psalter to be placed. So the psalmist arranged all of the psalms, and then at the very end, put Psalm 1 and 2 there at the front, acting as pillars or guides as we enter into the psalms, shaping how we read the rest of the Psalter. And as we come to it, we, we get to ask two questions of the psalms as we enter into Psalm 1. The first question is, What are they here for, and how do we read them? What are the Psalms here for, and how do we read them? And it says, it begins with, Blessed is the man who walks not in these ways, but in these ways. 
These people will be like trees planted by streams of water. They will be the ones who find a flourishing life. So what are the Psalms here for? They are here that we would find this blessed life in God. The Psalms are here to shape us and to orient our hearts and our minds and our entire lives towards God and the life that he has for us. And so how do we read them? We read them with that vision in mind. We read them so that we, our hearts would be set on that path, that we would walk towards God, that we would find life and instruction here in the next 149 chapters. But the Psalms ask questions of us as well. Psalm 1 asks these two questions of us. Who are we becoming and what is our vision of the good life? Who do we hope to become and what are we looking for as we enter in? And he asks us this in this way. He says, Blessed is the one who walks in the way of the righteous. It is those whose way will be known by the Lord. He begins the psalm with a beatitude, similar to the beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that Vince has been leading us through. Blessed is this person. And this word blessed means happy as well. It's where it can be translated happy, but happy is not generally the way we think of it today. The way we think of happiness today is fleeting positive emotions based on a specific experience. I'm going to get in trouble for this one, but think of Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Come and ride your favorite rides based on your favorite childhood movies. Come and... Eat greasy food that is overpriced. Walk around until your legs are tired and your children are screaming their heads off. Stand in lines full of sweaty, smelly people and here you will find this fleeting emotion called happiness. Sorry to all of you who absolutely love Disneyland. But this is how we think of happiness today. is come and experience these things and you will be happy. But happiness in this sense, or blessed in this sense, is not this fleeting emotion based on some experience, but rather it was a vision of a good, well-lived life. The ancient philosophers talked about it as the virtuous life. This is what happy means. This is what blessed means. Not some something based on experience, nor is it what we think of blessed today as hashtag blessed. I got that close parking spot when I pulled into church this morning. The guy gave me too much change back when I bought something. No, blessed was this well-lived, good life. Perhaps another way to put it is that each one of us probably wanted to be something when we grew up. Starting at a very young age, you'd ask me that question. I'd want to be a firefighter. For the longest time, I wanted to be a computer game programmer until I grew up and learned that I'm neither good at computers or computer games, so that probably was not the vocation for me. But in a few weeks, on our, at our fall carnival, children will come streaming through our doors, hundreds of them all dressed up, and many of, many of their costumes will represent what they want to be when they grow up. I dressed up as a firefighter, I dressed up as a soccer player, I dressed up as an astronaut, you name it, these are oftentimes visions of what children want to be when, we grow, when they grow up. Vocational... That vocation and thinking about the future starts at a very young age. But what's getting crowded out of that narrative is who do we want to become when we grow up? Who are we becoming? 
Stephen Garber calls this the problem of homeless souls. Everything in our society teaches us skill sets, how to be skilled and productive in society, but they don't teach us who we are becoming. They don't instill within us the virtuous life or a vision of the good, well-lived life. We become skilled but homeless souls. So we enter into the Psalms. The Psalm, Psalm 1 gives us a vision of what this well-lived good life is, a life rooted in God. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to form not just virtuous souls, but the community of God, people rooted in him. And this is how we enter into the rest of the Psalms. The Psalms will unpack this vision, but Psalm 1 provides this aim, this vision of who we are becoming. So if we want this way of life in God, how do we get there? The Psalms say it's through his word, of which the Psalms are included as his word. The way of God, the well-lived life, is found through delighting in his word and allowing it to shape our lives. And he presents, as he presents two ways, he's talking about a fundamental reality. This isn't works righteousness that we have to be perfect and go on this road, but he presents two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, asserting a fundamental reality. The choices that you and I make will end up making us. If we get on, the, if we get on I-80 heading east, we will not end up in San Francisco. We will end up in Nebraska. Now, in first surface, I presented San Francisco as the righteous life and Nebraska as the wicked life, but I was almost unanimously corrected that everybody in first service would rather live in Nebraska than San Francisco. So maybe envision Reno instead of Nebraska. Does that help? I can switch the metaphor for you too. Nebraska can be the way of the righteous. San Francisco can be the way of the wicked if we want. Anyways, the road that we take will lead us to its intended destination, is what I'm saying here. If we get on I-80 heading east, we will not end up in San Francisco. The psalm is really an echo. This, this psalm is really an echo of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. For Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and 16 say this. This is the Lord speaking. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you will, shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering. He will bless you in the land of Nebraska. That's what they really wanted to write there. So he goes on to say, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, just a couple verses later, he presents these two ways, and then the Lord God says, So choose life. Enter into this way of righteousness. Enter into this way that I'm inviting you into. So choose life. And how do we do this? We do this by delighting and meditating on God's word. This word delighting connotes an attitude. How do we enter into God's word? How do we come before his word? Well, the second, meditating, denotes an intensity. We're going to unpack those. We don't come to the, God's word as humdrum engagement. We don't relate to God's word the same way I related to all of my textbooks growing up. And if I did open them, I opened them begrudgingly and half-heartedly. No, rather, like the psalmist, we are invited to delight, to find joy in God's word as we come before it. For in it is found life. 
There's a revelation in there of a God who loves us more than we could imagine or comprehend. Everything that we need for life and godliness is found within there through his spirit. And this should spark something deep within our hearts. This should give us joy as we enter into his word. Psalm 119, another one of the wisdom psalms. It is the longest psalm in the Bible, 176 verses. It's also the longest chapter in the Bible. But the entire thing is a proclamation of the psalmist's enjoyment of God's word. In fact, he he wrote it as an acrostic. Every eight verses starts with a different letter working his way through the alphabet. So verses one through eight start with Aleph, or in our day and age, A. Second, second set, 9 through 16, is Bet. And then the third set, Gimel, because they skipped a couple letters and went from A to B to G. But in those, I'm going to read just three verses within that third stanza. Open my eyes to see the wonderful truth in your instructions. I'm only a foreigner in the land. Don't hide your commandments from me. I am always overwhelmed with a desire for your regulations. I'm always overwhelmed with a desire for your instruction, God. This is the attitude that the, that the psalmist takes as he enters into God's word. And the acrostic is saying comprehensively how this shapes his life. From A to Z, the psalms, the word of God, the entire scriptures are shaping the psalmist into what God invites him into in this vision of the blessed or happy life. The second part is meditating on God's word. This part that connotes an intensity. As I was reading, there was a wonderful crude metaphor given to me by Eugene Peterson who talks about living in the hills of Montana, how his dog would often go out and run around in the woods and come back and bring this giant bone. And if any of you have a dog, you know what this experience looks like. Your dog finds this bone and he comes before you and he's so excited and proud of what he has found. So he prances around and shows it off to you. And after gaining your approval for finding this bone, he goes off by himself and starts chewing and gnawing and salivating over this bone and licking it and just spending the next several hours intently focused on this bone. Sometimes, if it lasts more than a day, buries it, and the next day goes out and does the whole thing again. Interestingly enough, the word in the Hebrew here for meditate, hagah, is this exact same image. It's used elsewhere in the scriptures to denote a lion getting ready to devour its prey. The grumbling, groaning sounds it makes as it's about to do the same thing that this dog was doing to its bone. As it gets ready to devour its prey, to intently focus on this one thing, this is the word that we're given for meditating on God's word. Meditates on his instruction day and night. We enter into God's word, savoring it, chewing it, working our way through it until it works its way through us. It's not about getting smarter. It's not about acquiring more knowledge. but It's about the word sinking into our hearts and defining and shaping our reality. This is the invitation of meditating on God's law day and night. And when we do so, the psalmist paints a picture of what we will become. He says we will be trees planted by streams of water that bear fruit, whose leaves will not wither, will prosper in every season. Their ways will be known by the Lord. 
And in doing this, he gives us a wonderful mixed metaphor here of walking trees. Gives us this metaphor of walking trees. Blessed is one who walks not in these ways, but in these ways, for they will become like trees. When I first came across this mixed metaphor, I immediately thought of Lord of the Rings and the Ents in the Two Towers. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Okay, four of you. Great. (laughs) This metaphor will make great sense then. So in the Two Towers, the second of the Lord of the Rings books and movies, Merry and Pippin, two of the hobbits, get taken by the orcs, and when they escape the orcs, they wander into this forest to escape, and they come across these trees that are walking around. These mythical walking trees. And once the Ents, is what their names are, discover that Merry and Pippin are not orcs, they befriend them. And Merry and Pippin convince them of all the evil that Saruman is doing from his fortress in Isengard. And the Ents agree after a period of time that they were going to go and destroy Isengard. What's amazing about this is that it takes them forever to decide this, but once they finally decide to destroy Isengard, they march in there and they do so with relative ease. They break down and smash things with no problem at all, but one of the most powerful scenes is they pull out the stops and the braces for the dam that is preventing the water from flowing in. And the water comes crashing down like a tidal wave. And as it comes crashing into this fortress like a tidal wave, all the ants just do is they just stand there and plant themselves like this. Water comes crashing through their legs, and they're just standing there, strong and stable. And all of the orcs are washed away into the cracks and crevices and swallowed up by the earth. This is a profound picture of the rootedness that we're invited to in Psalm 1 is to be walking trees, these trees that are rooted. Our lives are rooted and grounded in God and his word. But both parts of this metaphor are needed. Interestingly enough, this image, this mixed metaphor of walking trees, shows up all throughout scripture. Jeremiah and Isaiah both mention this. In Mark 8, when Jesus heals a guy on round one, the guy can see partially but not wholly, and Jesus says, What do you see? And he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus heals them completely, and he sees them clearly. But Paul in Colossians 2 picks up on this, and he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is a picture of the blessed life. Susan Phillips notes that both sides of this imagery are needed. If we see ourselves as walking but not trees, then we would overlook the importance of being rooted and grounded. When the circumstances of life come, it would be too easy to be tossed to and fro, and we would be like trees faltering in the wind. The image is important because, as the Psalms will show, the blessed life isn't an easy life. It's not a life in which nothing bad happens, but it is a life in which we walk with God through the midst of all of it, seeing his faithfulness, his provision, his power, and his love. Phillips tells us that garden or tree imagery draws our attention to the variations due to season, weather, and age, and ultimately the generativity of bearing fruit and enriching the soil. Life in the garden entails the rooted realities of interdependence and intimacy. 
But the image of walking is needed as well. She goes on to say, on the other hand, to see people as like trees but not walking on a path neglects our forward movement through time and space, the development of our stories and progress towards destiny. The narrative of a journey tells of places seen, places left behind, and places appearing on the horizon. We're called to enter into this life, to journey through life. This is why the part of the walking trees of walking is needed, that we walk through life. But we do so as those who are rooted and grounded in God's love and his spirit and and within his word. And as we do this, this is how we become like these trees. This is how we enter into the blessed life. So what do we find in the Psalms? We find the way towards this happy life that God invites us to. This virtuous life found within God. How do we read and meditate on them with delight? We do so with that aim in mind. And when we come before his word in this way, he will shape us into these walking trees. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table to celebrate this wonderful invitation that God has given us, this incredible reality. So in a moment, we're going to take a few minutes reflecting on the path that the Lord has us on. But before I do, I want to point your attention to one more thing that we are incorporating here as part of our communal worship on Sundays. And that is that we are, starting this Sunday, we are going to have a prayer ministry team available up front at the end of each service and after the service to pray with you. We've been wanting to do this for a very long time, but this just happens to be the season in which it works really well. And we figured that as we unpack prayer through the next six weeks in the Psalms, this would be a wonderful time to launch this and make this available to us. So the communion servers, after they serve communion, after you come up and receive communion, they will remain up here available for prayer for you. If something from the sermon or the worship stirred your heart, or if you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus, or if you need prayer for anything at all, healing or life circumstances, relationships, job situations, anything like that, we have a team of people that would love to pray for you. So we just want to point your attention to that right now. They will be available up front after communion. With that, let's bow our heads and prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Take a few moments and reflect on what the Lord is doing in your own life and cultivating you into a walking tree. What is one way you can delight and meditate on his word? Let's pray this prayer of confession together from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean.
Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And Paul reminds us in Colossians 2 of our identity and our forgiveness in Christ. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, having canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. From the Lord, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit we pray that you would lead us in the paths of righteousness. By your power, may we delight and meditate upon your word. Guide us faithfully into all that you have for us, Lord God. Cultivate us and shape us. We pray all of this for your glory and your name. Amen.